We take a single episode of a science fiction TV series and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. This is the Fusion Patrol Podcast. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Ben. And uh, having just completed our run of Blake 7, rather than just launch into some new series, which we honestly haven't actually picked yet, uh, we thought we would take some time to take a look at a few, or some, of the 1970s Gene Roddenberry pilots that he tried to do, trying to uh, uh, capitalize on his success uh, in Star Trek uh, before he came back. To, to do Star Trek. Star Trek, yes. Uh, and the first one we're going to be looking at is Spectre, written by Gene Roddenberry and Sam Peoples, and stars Robert Culp and Gig Young. And the story is as follows. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson wannabes, William Sebastian and Dr. Hamilton, reunite after many years when Sebastian calls for Hamilton's help. Sebastian is the world's foremost criminologist, Ah, oh, hell, who am I kidding? He's supposed to be Sherlock Holmes, right? He's Sherlock Holmes with a sex drive and an eye for erotic art. Hamilton is Watson. Well, when I say Watson, he's Watson with a drinking problem and a sex drive. An overactive sex drive, actually, considering the trouble he's in back at the hospital. Okay? Need I say no more? Excellent. Sebastian became troubled with the unsolvable crimes of evil, like Charles Manson. He felt that there must be more, and so he turned to the occult to seek it out. And he found it. Hamilton doesn't believe a word of it, of course. Anitra Sion, of the wealthy Sion family in England, has called Sebastian to come check out her brother, who she thinks is possessed, and she wants Sebastian to banish or kill him. They travel to jolly old England and investigate Geoffrey Sion the Elder, who leads a swinging lifestyle indeed. His house is filled with sex nymphs just waiting for the next orgy. He regrets none of it. I live the life all men would live if they weren't repressed by puritanical people. A now dead friend of Sebastian, who apparently did all of the research in this case, uh left a diary when he died, and he says he thinks Sion has been killed and replaced by Asmodeus. Sing it with me. Asmodeus! (laughs) (laughs) Because it's really like that in the show. (laughs) It really is like that in the show. They investigate the underground druid's fire pit (laughs) under the house and find the black cathedral and the sacrificial altar. Later, the orgy moves underground, and Asmodeus reveals himself to be Mitri Sion, the other brother that I didn't even bother to mention in the recap until now. Sion the Elder is actually his priest. Asmodeus demands that Sion rape and murder his sister on the altar, but he cannot. Sebastian is now called forth to perform the act, but... He's the hero, so he doesn't, and Asmodeus is defeated, and the underground cathedral collapses, uh, burning all the orgy folks. The end. Okay. Spectre, I am... I, I, I want to I say something about this show. Mm-hmm. Um, first off, you know, from everything I've ever read, old Mr. Roddenberry was a bit of a perv. Um, or at least he really liked the ladies. Um... A lot. Mm-hmm. And he has been known for trying to push that envelope um, in Star Trek, in, in in anything he does. And, of course, he always gets uh, pulled back down uh, standards and practices. So, I mean, there's a lot of him spread around this, this story that you can sh- kind of see um, his thing. So that part, that fits to me for the picture i have of gene roddenberry the man that part fits but what doesn't fit and i and i know that this is not a i know this is not a a a hard fast rule but most everything that gene roddenberry ever did most of it was based very heavily on his 
humanism, the humanistic values that he holds, which basically is relatively an atheistic point of view. Here we have the only work that I can think of by him that totally takes the almost classical Catholic point of view for the reality of the world. And it's an doesn't feel like he captures it quite right. And I and I wonder why such a departure from everything else he's ever done. Anyway, I, I, I bring that out there as a potential something to think about as we go along the way. In the meantime, what did you think of Spectre? The 1977 Spectre, by the way, not the James Bond film of a similar name. Well, let's see. Um, this thing is terribly dated. Oh, yeah. uh, fortunately, I mean, sadly, a lot of 1970s television does not exactly stand the test of time. It is, if, if it's trying to make an, uh, t- trying to take a stab at being something other than science fiction, in this case, you know, supernatural quasi horror, it's very bubblegum, very, I would almost call it family-friendly by today's standards. Well, which version did you watch? Well, <laughs> just wait. Okay. Just wait. Well, I'm going to be family-friendly. I mean, I mean, you, you compare it to horror today, and it's just like, okay. it's, it's, it's bubblegum. That's what I mean. I mean, I'm, just, I'm comparing it to today's standards. Okay, okay. Um, and the story is badly told really badly told in terms of any kind of uh, plot development, character development. It just, it, it it screws with details. It skips over details. Uh, I mean, it's, it, again, it, it, it's, it's, it's a really, really badly told tale. Having said all that, I've got two words in regards to Spectre. Guilty pleasure. <laughs> Okay. 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 Uh, I don't know why, but I really love this thing. It's okay. just, and I shouldn't. I should really hate it, but I don't. I mean, everything about it says there's nothing redeemable. I like the music. Interesting. Okay. Well, I mean, except for the Osmodios. I mean, the, <laughs> I mean, I heard that, and I went, "Wait a minute! I have to play that back." <laughs> I don't care if I'm at work, and I don't care if my boss you didn't even is watching need to me play it back because they do it more than once in the episode. <laughs> I know, but it's like every time I hear it, it's like, oh, right. Well, the first couple of times, it was it, it felt a little kind of downplayed. But right when Asmodeus finally makes his appearance, yeah. I mean, properly, then it's like it's blatant. And, I, and you know, here I am. I'm, I'm, at my, I'm at work, and I'm watching this, and I'm not supposed to. And, and all of a sudden, I thought, no, I'm sorry. I don't care if my bosses do see me. I have to rewind this so I can hear this again just to make sure I'm not losing my mind. <laughs> Uh, uh, okay, I I didn't hate it. I, I, I don't want to put it that way. I, I didn't hate it. I thought it wasn't particularly very good, as you say. I, I felt part of the problem was that, and I kind of alluded to it in the in the recap, is our detective really didn't do any detective work. He either knew it all, right? I mean, he spends a good 60% of the episode just explaining things to Hamilton. That he already knows, you know, the high priest will be a cat. They believe they can, can, you know, I mean, he knows all of the, he knows all the stuff. So instead of us finding it out and learning about it through the course of the episode, he's just one big exposition dump from mm-hmm. one end to the other, which, you know, is, is a poor man, Sherlock Holmes with Sherlock Holmes. When he's giving you an exposition dump as to how stupid you are and not realizing this, you feel like he just worked it out himself. You know, from what we saw, not receive wisdom from from before, and you know the the friend, the guy who got killed in the fire, did all the research for mm-hmm. him and put it in the. It's just I that part I didn't. La- it is very yeah. Mm-hmm. It's very lazy on that. Part. Very lazy. Yep. So uh, I I absolutely adored when the high priest came out that he had. That he had a midget <laughs> dancing yeah, around his cool. feet. <laughs> it's it's so the whole thing was so hammer horror 
It tried to be. It That's tried the problem. To be. Yeah, and it, look, it failed. Yes. Yeah, no, yes, yes. But, uh, you know, it, it's very British. This is, this is an interesting thing about that because I think we've talked about this before. You can look at things like Canine and Company and, um, a number of episodes of Doctor Who. You just didn't really get covens of witches in robes and stuff on television here. And I think, you know, and, and that lends itself very well to the countryside of England. And then the, you know, the, the kind of rural and, history that we don't have here Mm -hmm. and so when i see something like that i expect it to be england so here we have an american production done in england by an american a couple of american writers and i i can't help thinking that part of the miss is because they're not english writers that that they're not steeped in it in the same way you know, it'd be like if you and I wrote one. We've seen lots of it, but it it just doesn't quite. I don't know. It it, just, it doesn't quite match. No, it screams American. Yes, yes, it totally, does. totally and, screams American. And it's intrinsically not, or it shouldn't well, be. Well, it's not. And, you know, here and here again, this comes into what I was saying earlier about what I what I called it bubblegum. I mean, now I. Am an avid fan of the Hammer films from the you know in the sixty you know actually more like fifties into the seventies. I, I love the Hammer movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, phenomenal. Uh, they're they're rich in texture, uh, in tone. Uh, they, they cinematography, they, everything. They, well, yeah. I mean, they they don't Blizzards. hide anything. You know, but you know, these, again, these are also made for the theater as opposed to something that's being made for television. So there, there is obviously there's going to be that intrinsic difference, and you know God only knows what was going you know through Roddenberry's head as he was thinking how he was going to possibly sell this. So, but with all of that, it 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 is terribly watered down, and that that's why I called it what I did, mm-hmm. you know, just this big you know bubblegum attempt at uh, theatrical horror. Now, let me ask you this question, and if you were watching this at work, maybe you, you know, were watching it on your phone or something tiny. Which is what I was doing, yeah. So you may not have seen it. Um, this has not been given a commercial release, to my knowledge. Um, so the only way I could find it was on YouTube. And I don't remember which link I sent to you all those many months ago, because I had to go refind it again. When I, I don't know. I, I got the sucker downloaded and it's Did, and the, in, into my um, Apple TV. So when you watch this, if you're watching it on the big screen, it's very apparent that this is not safe for work because oh, God, titties no. are out. Oh, totally. There, there are naked breasts all over the last of that sequence. And when I was watching, I'm like, how did, how did Roddenberry ever think he'd get this on TV? That I mean, that's. That's not like a little nip slip. We're talking, right? Yeah, like, and and uh, that's and that what? that is unusual because uh, you hear so many you know interviews you know, with Roddenberry regarding Star Trek, and the things that you know the battles that he had with with the network censors, and the ways that he had to get around that just so that he could get you know either you know either his message or his imagery right across. I don't know. Maybe because this was a post laughing. I mean, you know, you you, you look at laughing. Well, I, uh, I have the answer. Th- oh, you do? There's oh, an okay. Extended, what is it? Then? There's an extended version that was released in the UK in theaters, and that's the one we watched. I see. This not the not the edited one for TV. Well, I think it's the other way around. I think there's the original is the TV version, and then the European cut is the well, it's the European cut. I can I can remember I remember um, Sir Roger Moore giving an interview once where he was talking about back in the sixties or the fifties when they would do movies um, they would you know they're shooting movies for England and they would shoot a scene and then he said what they would then do is they would go through and they go okay now we're shooting the European cut and they'd take the tops off some of the girls and they'd shoot it again. And they'd make a European cut, <laughs> mm. and they'd make the 
<coughs> for puritanical countries like England and the United States cut. And well, you know, uh, th- well that's uh, actually happened. that Here. that used to be done in the U.S. Uh, a lot oh, too. I expect it probably did with some rated R films that they wanted to show on airlines for you know cross you know cross country flights. They would actually film two versions, or at least two versions of specific scenes, because they had no idea who the heck would be watching on a flight on a plane. They didn't want to edit it, so they would actually reshoot the reshoot specific scenes. I mean, I don't think they I don't know if they do that anymore, or if airplanes. Well, I think yeah, with they the had, way that airlines now make it so. possible to watch movies, it's not really that big an issue. But when everything was like on a big screen that everybody on the plane could see. Uh, they would actually do, you know, take certain scenes that were considered a little. They're still you know, edited down. Well, point. yeah, there is some editing down, but I remember hearing uh, an interview with Will Wheaton, and uh, he, this is for a movie that he did called Toy Soldiers, and he said that there, there were scenes that he had to film twice, once for the theater and once for like the airlines, because they didn't want that version. They didn't want the theatrical version to go out and be played on, uh, on an airplane. Well, anyway, thank goodness that the European version is the one that's on YouTube, as far as I can tell, because it, it clearly is in keeping with Roddenberry's vision for this. I mean, <laughs> the, the, which is the which is the other part that I think dates very badly in this film. It's horrible objectification of of women in many instances. I mean, they are they are his sex toys, all of them. They're there for the pleasure of the guests. They're there, you know, to pleasure his members of his coven. They're there to show up with a push of a button in a dominatrix outfit and a schoolgirl outfit and prepare to get whipped. I mean, I, I have to think that scene wasn't going to make it on American television either. Mm. I, I don't know. I when they roll in, I'm like, I cannot actually believe i'm seeing this in a 1977 tv movie mm-hmm. um and that's i don't know i i don't, I don't know there's just something off <laughs> there's just something off there that i i feel like roddenberry's trying to say something he's reaching out from the grave and you know he's definitely kind of on the free love bandwagon, I think. Oh, please. Yeah. The stories about him oh, yeah. are beyond the pale. Exactly. So he's... This is one side you could argue is a manifestation of the sexual revolution. So yeah. If, if we're just going to do this for fun, then why not? Right? Why not have a house full of sex nymphs? But on the other hand, what's in it... I. You know, it's kind of the whole Playboy Mansion thing. It just really still it doesn't it doesn't seem like a, the revolution is very two sided. There, it just seems like well, now the, I have well, an you're right. You're, to, oh, a- absolutely, the revolution is there for the men to ogle. Yep, yep, and you know, but it doesn't go the other way. And the women are, I mean, it's very misogynistic. I mean, the women are treated as, I mean, they're they're totally objectified in this. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, A, I think we're seeing a little of Roddenberry. B, I think we're seeing a little bit of that awkward transition period to the continuing awkward transition period that the world exists in. But, you know, it, it just... I think they were trying to be quote unquote a little progressive, and at the same time, it's terribly not. <laughs> oh, you're right. You know what I mean? It's like, well, it was what showing- they thought as being progressive, which, <clears throat> I mean, in the cold, you know, in the cold light of uh, you know 2017, um, no, obviously it wasn't. There was it. It was it, yeah. It, it was like as you said. It was it was a very one sided view. Yeah. Okay, let's uh, got a few a few notes here. We'll just kind of run through them and and uh, see what we've got. Um, so one of the features, at least throughout the course of this episode, is that Sebastian has this hole in his heart, which is uh, apparently being held together by a witch um, named. Can't imagine who plays the witch, <laughs> played by Mrs. Mrs. Rodmary. 
<laughs> herself, Majel Barrett. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they, um, um, you know, if you look at the backstories on on start, if you listen to Gene Roddenberry a lot of his talks, he'll talk about how when they did the pilot, they didn't like having Majel Barrett as number two because number would, one, number one. Sorry, well, the number two person on the ship. Sorry, right. Number one, but they didn't like that, so get rid of her. Mm-hmm. Right, that was, and get rid of the guy with the ears. Get rid of the guy with the ears. That's how he always tells it. But but the the documentation and other eyewitnesses put that as a subtly different. It was a subtly different play on that. They wanted her gone because they knew she was his mistress. They knew why she had that part, and they didn't like it. Ah. They didn't like him. <laughs> it's like they kind of didn't like Gene Roddenberry. He had he had messed them up a couple times. In the past, um, with his headstrong ways, there was a, a TV series that he did before Star Trek, the the Lieutenant, the Lieutenant. Lieutenant, right, and which had Gary Lockwood was the star, and they had been granted full cooperation by the U.S. military. They could shoot on the bases. They could shoot, you know, if they needed extras, they just called, and the military would supply up the extras or equipment because it was a great service win, you know, public relations win for the military. And Roddenberry put out a script. I don't know whether he wrote it or whether he was just championing it, but put out this script that involved uh, a, a black person in the military who had been discriminated against or involved in a crime. Uh, but it was not his fault. It was because the white guy was actually racist against him and had pushed him into it or something, right? So it was, the lieutenant, I guess, was some sort of an adjutant general um, office, military justice thing. So they didn't like this because it made it look like they had racism problems in the military. And they, they put the kibosh on it. They said, no, you don't do that. And the studios came down and said, yeah, Roddenberry, you don't do that. And Roddenberry did it anyway. Mm. And the military pulled all their support. That was it. You're done. You get nothing more. And, of course, that shot the budget through the roof and the show got canceled and da-da-da-da-da-da. This is the kind of thing that he would uh, he would do to make a point. Uh, and so he had they had this kind of knowledge of what kindness is. And yeah, so they, they, they just didn't like it. They didn't want him to have Angel. Of course, she slipped him in. He slipped her in again with a wig. And they knew. <laughs> Like, but they that one slid by. But I mean, it's just you know she's in everything he does. Yeah, and uh, along with several of his other uh, mistresses. But that's another story. Ah, uh, that's yeah, that's for another. That's it's, for another episode. I'm not aware that any of them made it into this film, though. Which is, uh, I didn't spot any of them anyway. Well, um, I wouldn't know who they were. And Michelle Nichols is one of them. Well, that's true. Um. That's the lurid tales thing. Gene Roddenberry's peccadillos from people who didn't know him. <laughs> but uh, uh, anyway, so he's uh, he's got this hole in his heart, and somehow that's being held together, and it's been done through voodoo. I kind of I kind of found that an odd way to to do. I mean, I get voodoo, right? The the voodoo doll, but that's. I've never heard of it leaving a physical trace. Uh, I can't comment. I mean, I, well, you're, I've never heard of it either, but I just... Uh, I, I guess the part that was strange is, all right, so you've got... Let, let's say that you've got a voodoo doll and you've got a needle stuck through you. Now, typically, and of course I have to say it's based on television, you know, they, they act like they have a needle stuck through them. Ow, 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 right? But here... He actually has scar tissue right, on his thing. So it's neither a needle through him, because if it were, there'd be a hole, nor is it nothing. And then he's showing the x-ray of the heart, and we never really get a good look at it, but basically he says there's a hole right through it there. Mm-hmm. And like, how are you doing it? So, so there's no hole in the outer flesh, but there's a scar, and then there's a hole in the heart, but not did, – did he have one on the back? Was that – it's like – it just didn't seem well thought out. And, um, of course, our 
bad guy holds that against him throughout the course of the episode until we get that cured, uh, and then it goes away. The scar and presumably the hole in his heart, but that was... I, I thought that was a little weird. Um, he burns a succubus with mm-hmm. the Book of Tobit. Why did he kick Hamilton out of the office? I don't know. Wouldn't it make more sense to let Hamilton Keep him see in. her burn? So he can see all of this for himself? Yeah, I wondered about that too. Um, I also appreciate later in the... Appreciate's the wrong word for it, but we'll, we'll call it that. Later in the episode, in the... Uh, previously mentioned dominatrix naked woman in bed and oh, schoolgirl scene and dr hamilton has now been worried about women being succubuses mm-hmm. and he wakes up and this woman's in his bed and he says to her you aren't a succubus are you and she goes succubus oh i like the sound of that I like the sound of that yeah oh my goodness gracious <laughs> Oh, that hurt. <laughs> mm, yeah. um, and, and as you said, the, the story just doesn't, you know, we go to the, we arrive in England, and apparently you can just go into England and bring a gun, because he brought that antique pistol with him. Why he brought an antique and not a... It's a different method. time. It's a different time. Um, also, go find the best gunsmith in London. That was an all-night hunt. <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> Come to think of it. Um, but when they went to the house and it was burning, is the chauffeur the monster? <sighs> I think that's what we were being told here, is that these creatures, that's, these people yeah. could transform if they were far enough into his sphere of influence. Hmm. You know, it mm. didn't didn't quite couldn't quite uh, make that out if that was what it was supposed to be. I didn't yeah. quite catch that. Well, you know, I'm not sure. There, there's the line where he says, "Take me to uh, Merlin's Muse." Really, Merlin's Muse. I know. And but see, this was here's 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 this is this is addressing what I was saying a little bit earlier about some of the storytelling. Uh, uh, now, granted, I was working at the same time and working on a project, so my attention was very split. But but I did play it back because I kept thinking it feels like that the story just accelerated terribly, and now we're dealing with this fire, and it it just felt um, very uh, not well thought out. No, no, because he, you know, he gets on the plane and said, okay, we're going, we're coming to England to see Cyan. Right. Get in the taxi, and the first thing he says, well, let's go see Dr. Quaalude, or whatever his name was. You know, uh, okay, sure, they go the there, blue. and they say, oh, fire, Russian, Russian, and, and I thought, did I get miss there something? And it's burning. That's right. They get there, and it's, oh, well, here's the other thing. He says, take us to uh, Marilyn's Muse number three, and she's okay, and they drive on, and then he turns to Hamilton, and he says, interesting, she was already heading that direction. Yeah. They arrive. The guy's already dead. The house is burning. I mean, talk about an elaborate set piece just to get him a book to translate later on. Mm-hmm. And, but anyway, they arrive there. Then they go inside. And while they're inside, the chauffeur waits outside. And then there's a creature. And then the creature leaves. And they come back out. And there's the chauffeur again. Yeah. Couldn't really tell. I mean, not explicit enough that. You'd say definitely, but at the same time, are they trying to? Uh, yeah, poor, poor story. You're right. Poor uh, storytelling, in, in many cases, there. Um, I mean, if if all it took was just a tiny bit more development, uh, maybe even thirty seconds. Although you know, who knows? Maybe they were just trimming all over the place to try and make it fit within certain. Uh, time parameters and maybe they maybe they cut out some really key scenes there you know very brief extremely brief but just enough to give you a sense of um connectivity between them arriving at merlin's muse and then them busting into the house because it's on fire i mean it it just i felt like something is seriously missing here i don't understand what's happening Mm -hmm. so uh he goes to the house, and uh, they 
have a confrontation amongst the uh, the siblings, um, and uh, he almost drinks wine with um, with glass in it. Mm-hmm. Ooh, dangerous! So he takes another glass, Hamilton's, because he can't drink anymore because he's got a spell on him. We can ignore that. It's just don't worry about it, and <laughs> it's irrelevant to the story apparently. And uh, all the glass he casts a demon hurting curse or something and all the glasses explode so that they can't it, it it's like it's the only clever thing he did in the whole episode yeah right? that, that's actually the only clever thing that our hero did throughout the episode as far as i can tell was he tried that demon curse thing and then that failed but you know it failed with good reason the the demon did at least defeat the trap which was he right. made sure he blew up all the glasses so that that they wouldn't uh, wouldn't know which one was it that couldn't drink um let's see what else we got here oh yes i did have to laugh at the water beds thing <laughs> the height of 70s what what it says was such sex, a trendy thing what says sex more than a waterbed in the nah, 1970s really. nothing <laughs> absolutely nothing um Let's see. Yeah. Everything, it's like, it just isn't. How about the stones? The Druid Circle. Oh, the Stonehenge. The um, Foamhenge, I think. Yeah, Foamhenge, yes. Foamhenge might be more appropriate. That is genuinely the most unimpressive stone circle I have ever seen. And I don't just mean that because it's foam. Well, you've and, been there. Well, and I don't, and uh, even not even that. So I've seen pictures of lots of stone circles, as you know, not that there's thousands, but of stone circles. That one was so tiny; it was pretty small. <laughs> I mean, couldn't they have at least found a spot to put that and make it look thirty foot across or something? I mean that that was the part that it it, it genuinely looked like a a miniature that you'd built. In your yard, mm-hmm. instead of an actual. I mean, part of that's because it looked like it was made of styrofoam, but but just because of the size, it looked like like a miniature railroad. There's my miniature druid circle. <laughs> Didn't um, no, it was pretty pathetic. Um, but then I just chalked it up to well, yeah, this is this is cheap television production. They went to England to make it. No, no, that's where they blew their budget going to England. <laughs> that could be it, I suppose. <laughs> um, let's see. How about the upside down woman? Oh yeah, um, that was kind of far out. Didn't quite know what to make of her. I couldn't figure it out either. Uh, I she was just kind of there. Um, it's it's. I mean, I've heard. I don't know if that was supposed to symbolize black magic sacrifice or what but i've heard people in jest refer to seeing uh all sorts of you know witch like practices that involve the hanging of people upside down okay there could so be something to that, it so there you know if that's the case then maybe there's really something to it not, that's why that's why she was the way she was uh that's the only thing i can think of because she really it wasn't wasn't really doing anything no than just giving us a cackle <laughs> she well, seemed I'm sure, to be unless some, herself. well unless somebody thought oh well this look cool you know again it's it's a really bizarre form of objectifying women you know i'm sure this is going to be playing into some guys I, fantasies i was wondering if there was something intended sexual about that the way she was spread eagle and mm-hmm. and prone and it, it just it's like I, I don't know what to make of this scene. I, I don't know if I'm supposed to be horrified or or what. Laugh at it. I don't get it. Feel sorry for her. I just you know was she next on the with menu? A was she I, uh, was she guarding things? I don't know. I just took it with a grain of salt and thought, okay, sure, whatever. Um. That's, uh, that's, that's, <laughs> then we have Osmond Deus, the song. <laughs> oh, that was fun. I want, I need that as a ringtone. 
Yeah. Well, you don't have a fireplace in your house, so it's probably okay. Yeah. But if you did, obviously. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah I can, I can, well, I don't want to be, I don't want somebody calling me, you know, while I'm in someone's house that does have a fireplace and that goes off, you know, and then the whole house gets torched. I don't have a whole lot. Like I said, it's just, it's an odd Broadbury entry. And, um, yes, this, I think this, this could be considered to be one of the oddest. Only because here now he's, he's, he's trying for something completely out of his, I don't say out of his depth, but I guess it's out of his depth. It's it's definitely out of his milieu. I yeah, it's, it's, some, it's not something that he's normally done. Well, you know, everything you can look at almost everything else he's done, and if you look at the you know Star Trek, if you look at Genesis, Earth Two, whichever, I can never remember which ones are his. Planet Earth, Genesis Two, Genesis uh, Two is his. Um, Planet Earth is. Planet Earth is. I don't think Earth Two is though. Uh, I can't. No, Earth, no Genesis Two, right? Not Earth Two. Um, and then there's one other that I can't think of, uh, the Dylan Hunt trilogy. He's got three of those. Mm. Oh, Not counting yeah. Andromeda, which I think right. he also uh, named. Right, Earth Final Conflict. All that stuff. He, there is, like I said, there's, there's that always... Well, I mean, for credit, ignoring ignoring the later stuff, but let's talk about the stuff in the 70s for just a second here. It, you can look at Earth 2 and all those things, and, and right down the line, those things ended up either coming out of Star Trek or going into Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Quester tapes. It's Mr. Data. Oh, totally. You know, no doubt about it. Oh, the, it's, it's it's admitted. Yeah. The PAX team in whichever one it is, Genesis 2 or, again, whichever one of those it was. I mean, you've got the guy played by Ted Cassidy who's got the bone ridges running up over his nose and down right. his spine. The big warrior dude that's found the ways of peace and you've got like an i think they've got an empath and i think they've got (laughs) this literally is these shows recycled over and over again and they come back to similar themes there's there's his the humanism there's the um peace diversity all of those things that rightly you know set the flawed man aside and put put the ideals out there are good. <laughs> it's like they're good. They're they're you know a positive vision for the future, mm-hmm. and but they all follow this pattern. And then this thing is just completely out of the blue. Mm-hmm. This is a wannabe Sherlock Holmes, and not a good one, right? And which would be fine, except that the whole point behind Sherlock Holmes is that rationality is the key to the success, and in this case. It's basically a leap of faith. It's it's so antithetical to what I expect from Gene Roddenberry. Yeah, uh, that that's that's the thing that makes it such a bizarre piece of work as a, as, especially as a pilot. Uh, and, and it's clear that there, there's no question. I mean, even if if anybody has any doubts, uh, just watch this thing if you can find it anywhere. Take a walk, take a good look at it. I mean, it was meant to be a series. There's no question well, there's about no it. Doubt about it. They brought uh, the band back it, together. It, and- it, yeah. It. You're right. It's it's totally uh, antithetical to anything that we expect out of Roddenberry, to the point where it, it almost you, you, you kind of puzzle over it. it almost defies it, it defies description because it's just so not what it should be or could be or supposed to be. Mm-hmm. You know, and 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 the fact that it's again it, it, this is a Roddenberry piece. Is what makes it so utterly bizarre because you're right. You don't get the standard uh, formula of characters mm-hmm. that we've seen uh, Gene just recycle over and over again. I mean, he keeps tossing them in a bag, shakes it up, and you know, dumps out the contents, and and now we have a whole new set, you know, a whole new combination of of the same elements. And there's nothing like that mm-hmm. here. I mean, and I I thought that too when I was watching. Is that oh well, clearly this is Sherlock Holmes. There's no, yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, you, you get that in like the first opening, uh, with the first minute monocle, yeah, monologue, yeah. I mean, the moment <sighs> the moment the doctor walks in there, and I went, oh, he's supposed to be Watson. Yep. So now here's a here's a question for you. Um, one of the criticisms leveled at Star Trek, let's say, one that I don't think is fair, and I know, I know you don't, from our previous conversation, and that is that it's a bit of a Pollyanna view of. 
of the future that right. doesn't take into account how cruddy human beings really are. And 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 I our argument, I'll have to say mine, but I think you're on with me here is that oh you and I are so on the same be, page. It's not meant. It's fiction. Yeah, right? it doesn't have to be. It presents a vision of the world that we want to see as right. part of the story, and that's and that's fine. And I would argue that we have enough evidence that enough people in their lives have been influenced by the values of Star Trek and adopted those as being what is right, even if they themselves cannot live up to that standard, that they have made a positive influence on people in this world. Yes, I agree completely. Okay, here's another show I love, I really love, and it has done nothing but negative for the world. The X-Files. Oh, I love the X-Files. It's a it's an amusing story. It's fiction. It's, you know, all this. But we know that it is totally rekindled belief in ghosts, belief in mm, yeah, UFOs and government conspiracies and stuff. It has it has dumbed down the public. It did during its run. And it wasn't I don't think it was ever meant to do that, but you know, that is a consequence of presenting a world that is filled with those things. Just like Star Trek can present a positive world and can make a difference, the X-Files presented this negative world and mm-hmm. created it. This show falls squarely in the X-Files mold. I mean, it, it, in fact, you know, we have the believer and the skeptic at the beginning. By the end, That's they're true. both believers. That's true, yeah. <clears throat> You know, medical doctor and the, the brilliant, the brilliant um, guy who can take the leap of faith. I mean, it is Mulder and Scully, just not as interesting or attractive or whatever you want to say about them. But it's also has that credulous view that people watching this, if it had gone on to be a series, it's just not what I expect out of Gene Roddenberry. That's, you know, it comes back to that. It's like, it just doesn't fit. Maybe. I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. So we have a couple of guest stars in it that people might recognize. Um, one of which is, uh, is it James Villiers, who um, was, if I'm not mistaken, um, M's replacement, not M, but chief of staff. Right. For, for your eyes only. Mm-hmm. Um, seen him in lots of other things because he's that very prim and proper but square-jawed kind of British diplomat kind of character you see him in or Lord or whatever so you had him and of course Mitri the hapless brother who turns out to be Asmodeus yes um, John Hurt John Hurt who I still utterly cannot see the war doctor in him no kidding. Yeah, I know. Well, this is he's so much younger. I mean, that what this is th- 40 years. Right, but I just we just watched Aliens not long ago and yeah, which is, you know, same time period and look at it and it's like I just can't see it. I mean, and, and that's a weird thing because Aliens, I mean, that was only just a couple of years and he looks so he so much he, he he looks like 10 years older in but that in Alien like than he did in, in this. Yeah. Oh well, in the War Doctor, forget. I mean, he's ancient in that, you know. And, yeah. And some of the some of the things that he's done more recently, you know, like they're like, you know, like like a couple of Harry Potter films or or Carl Sagan's Contact. I mean, yeah, it's it's not it, it's amazing to to look back and 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 try to you know pigeonhole that this this it's the same guy. Yeah. At some point in his life, then suddenly he just doesn't look like the same guy. No. That's, that's a weird. That's a weird one. Um. Is his performance um, fitting for an actor of his acclaim? Because, hmm. you know, we, we look back at it and say, well, you know, here's this guy who's the war doctor and he's famous for a couple of things. But the fact is, he's quite an acclaimed actor. Yeah, well, he's he is. Academy Award winning actor, literally speaking, for the Elephant Man. But that did, did he win the Academy for that? I thought so. 
I, I know he was nominated. All right, at the very least, an Academy Award nominated actor. Yeah. But he also was in some very famous British shows that, you know, have never made it over here. I think he was in um, uh, one of the... Um, one of the fall of the Roman Empire things, and uh, he was in. Uh, I should know this. I saw him at a convention a couple years ago, and he was talking about these old shows that he did that were very highly acclaimed. And you know, I, I'm not seeing it in this acting, though. Is what I'm getting at. Well, it's a really the part is supposed to be distract. Well, not distracting, but it's supposed to be diverting. He comes off as a, sort of a a wimp. He's supposed to. I mean, there's even one scene where his uh, his brother just smacks him, and that right there, we're supposed to get the thought that, oh, well, clearly, I mean, you know, the, the brother is really demonic, the older brother, mm-hmm. and instead, it's it's a complete role reversal, which, if anything, makes. Well, I like the idea of being completely misled. This one was ridiculous because if he really is Asmodeus, then at no point ever is his high priest, his number one disciple, going to backhand him like that. Well, unless it was in, unless unless it was he, intended, it was intended because then he promptly uh, staged a fake attack on himself. So that Sebastian would go, look, he pissed off his brother, and then his brother sent a demon to rip him up. So, you know, that could have been part of the... Because we are told, once again, we are told, not we discover it. At some point, when they go out to the stone circle and discover the underground passage, um, Sebastian just pops out and says, we're being led there. Yeah. Right? So this is all part of Asmodeus's game. So no free will whatsoever here on our heroes. They're just oh, yeah, God, we're just that. being we're just being bounced around in the plan that he's got for us and that's it. So again, this is one of the failings of this story is that everything is apparently staged except I guess the sister calling for them? I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure what what was going on there. And then the other thing is, so, and I, I think I put it in the recap, and it's not explicit in the story, but I tried to piece it together. When Sebastian is explaining how how he got this wound, basically he called something forth, which I think we're supposed to say it was Asmodeus earlier, right. and that he was supposed to carry through with some sort of a contract, which involved, quote, vile and unspeakable acts. And the first time he says that, I'm like, what does he mean? I mean, what in 1977 television is a vile and unspeakable act? Is it, I mean, I I don't even have anywhere to start. I mean, we're talking about murder. I mean, is that truly a vile and unspeakable act? Well, I just spoke it. Murder. I, you know, a criminologist would never say that. Oh, it's a violent, unspeakable act. Well, I he, think... He wanted me to do murder. He wanted me to do... I don't know. He wanted well, me to mutilate I, the body. He wanted... What? Yeah. I kind of get the feeling that they were talking about the most, you know, a, a really bad uh, form of mutilation that probably got highly sexual. Okay. Okay, good, because that's that was at the end of this episode when Jeffrey Sion is being put to the test and is commanded to sacrifice his sister. Uh, everyone's – the orgy's going on around him. Everyone's hopping all over, screaming in her face, and he's up there with the, the axe, and he's standing over her, and – He's like, stop, and he kicks everybody aside, right? He's like, mm-hmm. I'll go, th- I, I'll go through with the killing, but I won't do the other thing, or the other I won't have any butt with. And so, I thought when I was first watching that that he was like, all right, I'll kill her, but stop shouting in her face and bouncing around all you know the taunting and the the nasty stuff. 
But on my second watch, thinking back to Vile and Unspeakable, because they immediately start taunting her again. As soon as he right. goes back at it, they, they're immediately right at it. So that's not what he was stopping. He was stopping something else. And I think it was rape. It could have been. I yeah. think that's what he was supposed to do. I think he was supposed to rape her, then kill her. Could have been. But I don't know. But again, I'm trying to figure out what's vile and unspeakable. Because is that what Sebastian had been asked to do? With a sacrifice before? I just, I don't know. Well, <laughs> again, this is something, and this is part of the problem, is that it's it's written for a 1978 or you know, 77, 78 audience. And... It's it's easy just to write that line, yeah. And th- there's something th- there's something kind of you know, psychological theater of the mind when you just throw that out there that touches for most people. I think uh, something very dark and very primal and you know very very primitive uh, within within a person's psyche. You know, you hear that and without coming up with any specifics. It generates a bad connotation, and I think that's what they were going for. They were trying to create mood without specifics, without detail. It could be because I, because as you just said, I mean, you know, you, tr- you then like if someone had heard that, someone was watching that, and you know, and then you were to take that person, you know, like a say this was some sort of a screening, and you then you went up to the audience member afterwards and. Said, okay, so you know, what were some of the things that you thought about? You know, and, and then you bring up the violent, despicable acts, and, and and then ask them, you know, what were your emotions? And I'm sure they would have just, you know, kind of gave the the, the standard cliche. Oh, that sounds terrible, you know, the horrible things. You know, I can't. I'm glad I didn't have to see that. And then you put them, you know, put them on the spot and say, what do you think it would have been? I think that and would I, be the I, most I amazing. I will bet you they would not have an answer. <laughs> That that would be an interesting Rorschach test. It's yeah. like, what do you see here? Uh, I, I suspect it's hours of psychoanalysts could could make out of what people came up with for violent, unspeakable acts. Mm. Uh, he wanted me to cover her in chewed bubble gum, and okay, just don't go there. And <laughs> stick myself to her. No, go away. That's vile and unspeakable. I uh, yeah. Also, you kind of have to wonder where the line is drawn between the stuff that would have been eliminated for the American audience. Hmm. And because I still think in the dominatrix scene wouldn't have flown. I don't know. (laughs) I genuinely don't know. That's it's it's hard to say. It just seems that seems so. It's possible that it may not have gotten past the network censors, you know, and it's hard to uh, it's hard to imagine that because we're just so accustomed to the standards being entirely different today, right? Than what they are back then, and so to try and you know go back in time and to immerse yourself in those values, it's a difficult thing. But I think I, I I think you're right. I don't I don't believe that dominatrix scene would have played. And the schoolgirl. I mean, yeah. actually, I think the dominatrix would probably go better than the little girl in the school pig. Is oh, daddy? I mean, like oh, oh. Yeah, that's all kinds of wrong. That's all kinds of Ron Moore, Roy Moore, whatever that guy's name is back in Alabama. Uh, it's like no, 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 no. <sighs> Yeah, this is just a a, a weird a weird show. It but is. I guess, I guess. I guess Ron. You know, I I really wish you could ask Rodberry about this because it's like, did you go shoot this in England just so you could push the envelopes a little bit? Because hmm. I could totally yeah. see him doing yeah, that. I, it's possible. It's hard to say because every time I turn around, I find that there's there's a new level of depravity about him. <laughs> yes, yes, that may be true. <laughs> um, he's an interesting character. Oh, quite. He's an interesting character, and uh, I I greatly appreciate what he has done for this world. But at the same time, 
you know, maybe maybe you don't want to you don't want to get going on the hero worship thing going just right off the bat. Oh god, no, absolutely not. So, no, and if anybody's got any issues on that, I mean, all you got to do is take a look at Trek Nation, the movie that his son did, and it's a very um untarnished look at the kind of not so good person Gene really was, and I, I'm saying that uh, I'm, I'm definitely watering down my words. But uh, no, Gene was Gene was not a, a very good person. So no question raises raises a point uh, tangential, not not really on point. But but at what point does a person's actions outweigh the body of work? That they've produced. Ooh, right. I mean, I think wow, you can see where we're that's, going here. That's that's almost topical. Uh huh. Uh huh. I mean, and I'm not just picking on any. Uh, you know, there are any number of much beloved or formerly much beloved entertainers who, you know, well, so much for that. Um, yeah, quite a few whose yeah their careers are evaporating pretty quickly. But I've also noticed that their body of work is kind of disappearing, too. Yeah, but you don't see that with Gene. Now, it's possible, and, and that's a hard sell. Maybe it's because of the sheer amount of time that has been allowed to pass. Star Trek, uh, Star Trek fandom, Star Trek mania has, and in fact, even, even some of the... Um, a cult-like status that has grown around the non-Trek properties, you know, like Spectre and and Genesis Two, uh, all all of those things, Planet Earth. Uh, there, it it, they, it has their audience, mm-hmm. but because so much time has been allowed to pass, that there is now this sense of separation between the two, between the the creator. And the creation, as opposed to what we see now. Now it's because these things are still really fresh in our minds, because we're still seeing the people who are allegedly uh, being, you know, being accused of less than savory behavior. It's it's much easier for us to link them, link the person with the act right now. We can't do that. Gene's dead. I mean, by the time all of this information really started to come to light, Gene was dead. And I, and I have to say, I, I must admit, I'm not aware. Well, obviously, I'm not aware. I'm, I'm, like, <laughs> I'm not aware of anything that he did that was non-consensual. No, I'm not either. Okay, so I mean, that, that makes a difference. Like, if we're talking about yeah, we're not Will talking, Cosby yeah. or Harvey Weinstein, where we're talking about sexual harassment here, but we're talking about Gene Roddenberry, who... Uh, played the field a lot. Uh, he was a jerk. I mean, oh, totally. he, he clearly did some really jerky things. Um, I think you can't. I think you can't even summarize the jerky things he did until you hear about the Star Trek theme song, right? Where mm-hmm. he um, Alexander Courage wrote the theme to Star Trek, and Gene Roddenberry penned down some lyrics so that he could get half the royalties. Uh, yeah, that's that's pretty pretty cheesy. Um, and you think that story is apocryphal, but apparently it's, it's not. not. It's totally true. No, it's <laughs> oh, it's true. And an eye for the buck, and uh, <clears throat> you know, which is which is different than uh, <laughs> some of the other things. That anyway. So I think next time um, we are going to be looking at the Quester tapes. That'll be interesting because there's that's another thing I have not seen yet. Oh, we've not seen it. Excellent. No, I've never seen this. I've never seen Quester Tapes. Quester Tapes is available on DVD, just for people. Unlike Spectre, which is available on YouTube. May I suggest searching for Spectre 1977? You might find it if you want to watch it. (laughs) It's fascinating. I mean, again, I, I should not like this. I really should not like Spectre. But I do. Oh, Strange New World. Oh, Genesis yeah. 2, Planet Earth, Strange New World. Got it. Those are the three films. <laughs> I've forgotten about Strange New World. That was the third one we couldn't cover. Because Earth 2 was the thing that 
Steven Spielberg people did. Right. Years later. Right. All right. Well, Ben, thank you for joining me. Oh, a pleasure. <laughs> On this bit of a train wreck of a conversation we had this week. Uh, yeah. And listeners, I hope you'll join us all again next time. On Fusion Patrol. Cheers. Oh, you're not going to do Osmodeo? <laughs> no. No. Fusion Patrol is a Lone Locust production. Like us? Please consider becoming our sponsor at patreon.com slash fusion patrol. We'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Stop by and visit us at our website, fusionpatrol.com. Search for us on Facebook under Fusion Patrol. Check out our Twitter handle at Fusion Patrol, or just send us an email at feedback at fusionpatrol.com. Please come join the conversation. Our music is Fight the Future by Amberwolf.